Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Rates and Barrels, it's Wednesday, February 17th. Derek Ben Riper here with Eno Saris on this episode. It's part three of our starting pitcher preview. So this is the late pitchers we like episode with a lot of great questions that came in on Twitter. So we're going to get through as many of those questions, talk about as many pitchers that you want to hear about as we possibly can. If you are watching this show on YouTube, hello little visual confirmation for you there. Hit the like button on this video. Be sure to subscribe and, of course, tell a friend if you think they would like this show as well. You know, how's it going for you on this Wednesday? It's good. It's good. I'm excited uh, for warmer weather sometime in the future. <laughs> and I have it so easy, dude. <laughs> it's so easy. Like, my wife and I are, like, shivering. We we had an anniversary dinner, and we, we we ate outside at a at a restaurant. And it was... <laughs> for Palo Alto, it was pretty cold. It was, like, you know, like, 48 or something. And we just huddled over a... Over a little fake fire and and had some Cuban food. It was it was it was it was good. It was good to get out of the house. It was good to pretend like things were normal, even though once we got out there, we're like, this is really not normal. <laughs> well, I'm glad you had a meal outside. Yeah, right. I'm sorry. <laughs> really, really happy for you, and I'm glad you had a nice meal for your anniversary. But that's about where it ends for me. <laughs> I'm sorry, dude. No, no sympathy. I'm sorry you had to wear a sweatshirt or a sweater. <laughs> yeah. It's a tough, tough break for you. Oh, I know. Hey, I'm laughing. I, I do really feel badly. Uh, you know, Paul Spores in Austin and uh, the, the situation in Texas is not good. And so I hope that everybody listening has power and uh, heat and uh, is doing okay. Yeah, it's much worse than I realized when I first heard about the story. I was like, okay, the power is out. It'll come back on in a couple of hours. And it's been a couple of days for a lot of our, our friends out there. So hang in there. Hopefully things get better for you soon. We're definitely thinking about you if you're dealing with those conditions right now. Very scary stuff going on in Texas. Uh, let's get to some of the late pictures that we really like. We'll talk about guys we like first and then get to those questions that I mentioned up top. I want to start kind of in the 300 range in terms of ADP. So we're talking about truly late round pitchers. If we're in a 12-team league, the last couple pitchers on your roster, if we're in a 15-team league, maybe more of like your SP6, SP7 types, but definitely guys that are going to make a mixed league impact, in our opinion, even if they're being drafted as sort of fringy pitchers right now. I am still a believer in Tarek Skubal. And I think part of the appeal is that at a bare minimum, I think we're going to get a lot of strikeouts. I think his hold on a rotation spot is relatively safe. And even if he were to get option to begin the season, I don't think he'd stay at AAA for very long. I think the Tigers want to see the next stage of his development happen in Detroit. I know the major concern or the biggest concern in the profile 
is going to be command. But I think there's a kind of a philosophical approach that we've talked about on this show before where when you get to this range of the draft, you can take on some command risk. You can take on someone that's in the high 80s or, or low 90s with their command plus score, especially when you're looking at someone that can be well above average with strikeout rate and possibly someone that can put all the pieces together and be better in the ratios than the projections would lead us to believe. Yeah, I'm I'm struggling with the fact that uh, he ended up with a below average stuff score. And that doesn't really line up with my lived experience <laughs> of watching him. Um, I guess what I'm seeing is uh, the fastball doesn't really have uh, much ride. Um, the changeup doesn't have much movement. It does have a good velocity gap. Um, and then I guess the curve is pretty slow, actually, at 76 miles an hour. Um, uh, even though it has a large, it has a large gap, um, a large break. I think maybe the curve is not good. He threw 46 of them and didn't get, he got 8% whiffs. That's below average. Uh, maybe it's a a pitch he can use to get a grounder, but even there he got zero grounders on it. So let's take the curve aside. Let's say the curve is not that good. Still looks like he has a good change up slider mix. Got 15% whiffs on the four seam. So maybe the ride isn't that big a deal. I don't know. Um, I don't know. What I mean, What do you think? Like, I, I, I think... Uh, Three pitch lefty, man. And 95 miles an hour. Yeah. Yes. I think you can get by with suboptimal movement and suboptimal ride when you have that velo. And I guess because he's only 24, I'm not worried about the velo dipping. I think we're at the beginning right. of the career. So I tend to be a little more optimistic here. I would say that, um, you know, his projections are, are pretty good. Believe he's got he's a 75th ranked pitcher by the bat. ADP has him at 84th, and I have a big up question mark next to him uh, in my rankings. And I would also say that stuff is not infallible. As if you followed along, you've noticed that I've worked with Driveline for a stuff number. Um, I've worked with Ethan Moore for a stuff number, and he's revamped it while we work together. Um, and so it's not that it's not such a refined stat that has gone through so many iterations that we feel strongly about it. Like war, for example, has, you know, three different versions at least, and has gone through a unification of replacement level that changed, you know, everybody's war a little bit, um, has added framing, added pop-ups, stuff like that. So, um, you know, the stats are often more living and breathing than people want to give them credit. So I did have Scooble really low just because I couldn't, you know, the command wasn't there and the, the stuff number wasn't there and I couldn't really make the argument. But just looking, like watching him pitch and looking at uh, the numbers in a raw form, I, I think that um, I'm going to move him up. Uh, it's way too low at 150. I think he belongs at least... Um, in the sort of 115s, at least, where, uh, you know, there's TJ Antone, um, you know, Trevor Williams, um, Griffin Canning. He's got to be at least there. Um, and, uh, you know, 84 on the ADP, I guess so. But, uh, you know, in my 84, um, I've got some veterans that are that are that have things that speak for them. Zach Eflin is around there. Brad Keller is the seam-shifted weight god. Jay Happ, 
Jose Quintana, Mitch Ke- Mitch Keller. Like Mitch Keller seems like Scooble, but he's hopefully made a couple adjustments already. You know what I mean? It's dealt with some of the growing pains. Yeah, I mean that's yeah, possible that's, for sure. And his stuff number is a one ten next to a, a very similar command number. So after uh, Dane Dunning, Nate, Nate Nate Pearson. Okay, he should be maybe next to Nate Pearson. And Nate Pearson is at eighty eight mine. So I'll I'll push him into the back end of the top 100, I think. Yeah, so I've got Pearson, Howard, Casey Mize, Mitch Keller, Michael Kopech, who has to drop a little bit because they're going to manage his innings pretty There's carefully. Today. Yeah, yeah, I saw the tweet from James Fegan, covers the White Sox for the Athletic, that they're going to try and handle Kopech the way the Dodgers have handled Julio Urias. Uh, someone was quick to point out that like all but one of Urias's regular season appearances last year were starts. I took that information from Han as more of a 2019-2020 usage. I think about the postseason and how Urias came out of the pen. I, I think that's more likely what we're going to see. I don't think it was some sort of like code that, no, he's actually going to start. We're just going to make him earn it. I think it's going to be a flexible role since he opted out of 2020. But I've, I've got a, a couple other guys in that range that are, are that are part of this conversation, though, too. Scooble, Kopech, Turnbull, Dylan Cease. I have those guys all lumped together in the 80s. Yeah, and that's that's your uh, upside grab play. You know, that's 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 where you know I've got uh, Dean Kramer as uh, as an as a, an example. Adbert Alzale, who I think actually I have a down arrow on him too, uh, just because now it looks like Alzale and Mills are fighting for the last rotation spot in Chicago. But yeah, Dunning, uh, Keller, Kramer, uh, Kopech, yeah. Uh, I, 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 that's a, a place I like to put uh, players like this. And if you're looking like for a rubric, um, there, this, this area, uh, the sort of 80 to 100 area has a lot of really terrible command scores, but a lot of really good, uh, stuff scores. And I think, you know, all things being equal, you want both, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, at some point in the process, you have to make a guess in one direction or the other. Um, and, and, and just make a leap. And I think that, um, it's not necessarily that these pitchers, and I'm going to look into how command ages, uh, that's, that's, you know, written down here on my little post-it notes. You know, that's how I, that's how I work. I have just a bunch of papers with things on them, words on them. One says command aging. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, I want to look at that, but I think that command can actually be affected by like, let's say, um, Scooble stops throwing his curveball cause he can't command it and doesn't get good results. Right. Then his overall command score is going to look better. Uh, his overall command might be about the same. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there are some things that could be done like Mitch Keller. Maybe he starts throwing a cutter and he can command that pitch and, 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 you know, things, uh, still to fall in line from there. So. I'll bet on stuff in the sort of 80 to 100. And though school doesn't have the same stuff number, um, just sort of eyeballing it, I think he, he probably, there's something we're missing there. And I think the results as he cruised through the minors too get you even more excited. We don't usually see the big league debut last year, a 563 ERA, but a 122 whip, pretty good number in terms of the zone contact rate too. Like Scooble can throw pitches in the zone and not get hit frequently. The problem last year was that he had a major home run issue. He's never really had a home run issue in the minors before. But I, I think some of that is a little bit misleading because I think he's just overpowering for high A and double A type hitters, right? So it doesn't mean he won't go through an adjustment phase, but I think there's quite a bit here to like despite the ugly ERA that we saw from Scooble in the debut. Uh, Josh Lindblom 
is another guy that goes well after pick 300 that I increasingly want to move up in my rankings. A 388 FIP last year against that 516 whip, similar to Scooble, 128 whip. So not really that bad in that category. You know, called strikes and whiffs, the CSW really good at 30.1%, and a very deep arsenal of pitches. Uh, we still, at this time, don't know which ballparks are adding Cubidors for this season. I wonder if Miller Park is actually one of the parks that might do that, though, given how homer-friendly that park tends to play. So obviously it's a, a speculative sort of thing to even consider upgrading Brewers pitchers based on the possibility that they are one of those teams. But I think the arsenal, the command not being that bad, and the fact that Lindblom was showing a few little flashes late in the year of maybe turning things around, those all give me some hope that his second season in Milwaukee will actually be a pretty good one. Yeah, um, you know, I'm reminded a little bit of like what it was like for uh, Merrill Kelly to come back over uh, from Korea. And, um, you know, I think he had to relearn the strike zone. The strike zone is different there than it is here. Um, and he had to um, start he started throwing harder. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, so I think with Lindblom, um, you know, I'm not sure what the adjustment will be, but I do like uh, that he has so many pitches. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that the tweak could come with any one of those pitches. It's a little bit like a more veteran Turnbull situation. Um, I mean, he legit uh, shows up at Brooks as throwing one, two, three, four, five, six uh, pitches more than 8% of the time, even if you combine the changeup and the splitter. Uh, that's a that's a legit five pitch mix, um, so I, I have some confidence that he can he can find his way out of this, and uh, I have I have been looking um, at his rankings. Where do you have him? I've got him outside my top one hundred in the last published version. He's going to probably jump up into that ninety range though. And again, we're talking about an ADP around four hundred, a good cheap strikeouts play at the very least. Uh, maybe the other thing that's getting me excited about Lindblom too. He had a thread back in January from his own Twitter account, and he was explaining that one of his goals during the offseason was to increase mm-hmm. the spin efficiency on his fastball because the efficiency wasn't good for what he's trying to do with that pitch. So he he put a video up. He had some stuff with the Rapsodo machine. I mean, it, it's just being excited because it looks like someone who has a good idea of what might have gone wrong last year and is at least taking some pretty active and and seemingly smart steps to correcting that problem. The price is so low. It's like you draft him. If it's not working out, an easy cut. You're drafting him with the expectation that you're going to sit him in tough matchups until he gives you a reason not to anyway. I think that's the other key here. You're talking about someone who goes in for two start weeks, in for decent matchups, and gets pulled for more difficult spots. Yeah. That thing that we call kind of like a bench streamer where you have him on your bench, but you, you use him um, judiciously. I would say that the traditional metric, like now traditional metric argument for him is actually fairly strong. He had a really good strikeout minus walk rate, which is kind of useful in small samples. And then the stuff that's not useful all went in the wrong direction. His BABIP was bad. His strand rate was bad. Um, you know, so there's certain things that do speak well of, of his candidacy. You know, his whip was good. I You know, one of the first things I ever did in 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 fantasy was just to look at guys who had good whips and bad ERAs and buy those guys. 
it works. It actually, <laughs> it actually can work really well. And the other bump for the Brewers pitching staff, you know, we don't know about the humidor. We do know the defense should be better, right? I mean, you put Colton Wong in at second base and move Keston Hero to first base. You go from one of the worst defensive players at that position to one of the best, and you get Lorenzo Kane back in the outfield and center. I think that goes a long way towards helping the entire staff as well. If you need another reason to get on board with Lynn Bloom as a, a late, late target. Uh, I'll share three for now. My third one is Luke Weaver. And there's some injury risk because he had the forearm strain in 2019. I think there's some similarities to Lindblom where you have a guy that's really dialed into what he needs to do to possibly put all the pieces together. And I don't know what it is about this Arizona team. Maybe I just like them a little more than, than most people do. I, I don't really understand why. Weaver's still 27. Even in the shortened season, the K rate was decent. It wasn't off the charts good or anything like that. But the, the home run issue we saw from him last year was really the worst it's ever been since his debut in 2016. So I don't think that's necessarily his true talent home run rate. He was at 1.73 homers per nine. Not really expecting that to be who Luke Weaver is going forward either. If you split the difference between 19 and 20, you probably do get ratios close to the projections. The bats got him at 471 for the ERA and 135 for the whip. Maybe it's the 294 and 107 in 2019 that are playing tricks on me, you know, but I'm taking the chance on Luke Weaver as one of my last pitchers because even though there's health risk, I think the command is good and the arsenal looks deep enough for him to possibly turn the lineup over three times. Yeah, the command is good. And I think that his stuff number on my rankings is a little bit of something that's in flux. If you look at his uh, you know, monthly uh, velocities, uh, he lost a tick uh, right before he got hurt. Um, he lost a tick on all of his pitches, so that will affect uh, his stuff number there, uh, his overall stuff number. Uh, he also lost um, vertical movement um, on his fastball. His cutter started dropping more. He lost a uh, drop on his curveball. So um, I would as- I would just assume, uh, without knowing that these are kind of injury-related things, you know? Um, and if you're looking at the overall numbers, one thing that is interesting about him is that his four-seam doesn't look like it has great ride, but he's a real drop-and-drive guy. And so his four-seam actually does have a good vertical approach angle, basically. Um, and what that's saying is like, because he drops down so low and then has a little bit of ride, uh, the pitch looks like it rides more because the release points lower. And so it comes across the plate, um, at an angle that's difficult for, especially for low ball hitters to hit. So that combination of sort of drop and drive a little bit of ride. And then that devastating changeup, I think is just a really good foundation. You know, worst case scenario, he kind of goes through some Michael Waka issues. I think there's yeah. a similar picture there. Mm-hmm. But Michael Walker also gave us a couple good uh, years. And Weaver is young enough where you say, you know, I, I think the cutter, he'll figure out the cutter, and then we'll have a legit three-pitch situation here. So, uh, And the curve, you know, has been going up and down. So I, I think there's still a chance that, you know, with the right amount of health and the right amount of normal ramp-up to the season that we could see uh, something good out of Luke Weaver. Let's get a few from you, later pitchers that you've been targeting or going to target as more drafts unfold. I know you've had at least one in the books already, but uh, who else sort of catches your eye in this range? Uh, I like to take some bets uh, that are against my own grain and sort of against the grain um, of what I'm I'm seeing um, in drafts. And so, you know, JT Brewbreaker 
represents to me, um, you know, along with Alec Mills, um, a kind of play at maybe finding the next Kyle Hendricks. Um, these are guys that don't have standout velocity, but they have many pitches um, and they seem to really know how to put the ball where they want to. They're guys that have uh, Brubaker has 112 command plus Alec Mills has 114, um, you know, and they have slightly better stuff than Zach Eflin, who has a similar command number. So um, they're also a little bit younger. So it's like the, the, the promise, right? The upside, you know, we're not supposed to say that word anymore, but, uh, <laughs> so yeah, the Brubaker, Brubaker is a guy for me. Also, I want to point out that, um, that, uh, command, I, I'm not saying that like the work that I did, uh, was definitive. Um, and, um, uh, we, we did some cool stuff where, we looked at what command and stuff um, predicted. And one of the things we looked at was that command was better than stuff at predicting how many innings per appearance. Hmm. So basically, you know, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but the command was good at telling who would be a starter. So what I see with Brubaker that's very interesting is I see a very high floor, a very high likelihood he's a starter all year, a high likelihood that the uh, team doesn't necessarily feel like they need to um, massage his innings so much. It's not a Michael Kopech situation. Nobody probably thinks that JT Brubaker is going to turn into their ace. So, um, and they probably feel like they need to get some innings out of somebody. And Brubaker looks like the guy who's who's set up to do it. Which means that he's a really good bench uh, guy to have in leagues where we're all going to be chasing innings all year. And so to have a guy who's going to pitch in Pittsburgh against you know other offenses that may not be great. Um, you know, and, and, you know, pitch in St. Louis, you know, so I, I feel like, uh, Brubaker's a really good, uh, guy to have on your bench in that same way that you were talking about where you, you might use Lindblom in the right matchups. I think, I think Brubaker's matchups might honestly be easier to spot, you know, at home against most offenses in St. Louis against them, you know, uh, don't pitch him in Milwaukee sort of deal kind of k rate do you think we're getting from brew baker i mean the 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 stuff situation suggests that and that is the 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 risk i think with going with command over stuff guys is that you're attacking the sort of walk rate component and strikeouts are still a command are still a, a stat that we we're all chasing uh but you know in terms of k9 i'm going to take the over on the projected 7.7s that they've got a lot of those um i think uh are just reaching back to like a ball, you know, and like 2018 <laughs> strikeout rates. I don't know. Like, I, uh, if you look at his minor leagues, the, the strikeout rate for Brubaker is up and down, you know, just pretty wildly oscillating. So I'm going to, I'm going to say sort of like eight and a half, nine. That's pretty good. If he ends up getting up into that range, I think you can be pretty happy, basically free at the end of drafts. And I'm with you on the opportunity too, because behind Mitch Keller and JT Brubaker, Rotowire have those have those guys one two. They have Brault, Chad Cool, Tyler Anderson. I mean, there's no one there that's totally locked in. There's not really a prospect knocking on the door to take a spot just yet. Their their pitching is just not there depth wise. So I think there's a lot of wiggle room for all of those starters. So if you like any of them, if you like Brault or you like Cool for really deep leagues, I think there's a chance that they get plenty of work as well. I like those other two guys too, but one thing that we've seen in the usage of them is, um, you know, kind of three and four inning starts. 
And I don't think that's necessarily because uh, they're babying them for the future or anything. I think it's because of their arsenal and their shortcomings. Brolt's best pitches is fastball. I don't know that he has the, the number of secondary pitches that you want to turn a lineup over a bunch. And um, uh, the case with Cool is like he's basically a fastball breaking ball guy. Uh, so I think he has the same problem turning over lineups. I think in some ways the Pirates are mimicking the Rays uh, with those two guys, where they're like, "Hey, we're, we're cool with them. We're going to get four innings from them. That's fine. You know, we'll we'll figure out the other five. Um, so, but I, I I'm interested in both of them because it, you know one tiny little tweak, uh, both those guys. Like if Brolt Brolt found a found a better secondary, I think uh, he could take off. And if Cool, you know, uh, either glassnowed it. Or uh, or added a pitch uh, like those two. I would really, you know, Jason Collette always has the, um, the the new pitch tracker. Like I'd be listening on those two uh, if there was a new pitch. Yeah, can't rule it out either. The way Pittsburgh approaches pitching is a little bit different now than it was just a few years ago. We saw that a bit uh, with Joe Musgrove and some things he was doing with his approach. Uh, I think in 2019 and a little bit in 2020 as well. Uh, Cal Quantrill is a name that I wanted to bring up here because I know you've been interested in him in the past. In Cleveland, it looks like there's a really good chance he opens the year as the number five starter. I think there is some injury risk in that rotation. So if you believe in Logan Allen, it may not take that long for Allen to get his opportunity in Cleveland. But for me, there is kind of a, a clear gap in pure skills between Quantrill and Allen uh, what kind of ceiling do you think Cal Quantrill brings to the table? And does he sort of fit into this bucket of guys in that 300 to 400 range that you actually do want to stash away on your bench because you think there is enough ceiling for him to make a pretty big impact in a mixed league this season? I mean, I 100% think that he's got the job over Allen. Um, and I do want to see what uh, where his velo will sit when he's a starter. Um, he's been pushing the velo up more, but he's also been pitching fewer appearance, uh, p- pitching fewer innings per start. So you know, if he can hold 94 plus, and maybe he can for his first two seasons. Remember how Carlos Carrasco went into the pen and then came out and basically just kept his high velocity. Um, I think that they could be doing something similar with Quantrill, where they're like, "Hey, push that velocity, push that velocity." Now, when we get you starting. Try to keep that velocity, you know. Just hold it. Um, yeah, and if that's the case, then um, I could see him uh, performing on the upper end of his projections, getting that same sort of eight and a half strikeouts per nine, mid twos walk rate, uh, kind of brew breaker ish, but in a, in a slightly different um, approach. If the dead and ball combines with the cold Cleveland, I think Quantrill could be a guy who starts fast um, and may be a guy to sell. Um, you know, early in the season because, you know, it's a weird stuff command profile where he's basically league average in both. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of people who are like that. Um, other guys that are that kind of pop up that that aren't necessarily the same pitcher, but like are have similar stuff as like Joe Musgrove. Um, and uh, yeah, that makes me want to just drop the old eat this, not that. Take Cal Quantrill. Don't pay the premium for Joe Musgrove in San Diego. Jordan Montgomery. Yeah, I like him too. Jordan Montgomery is going in the 60s, and uh, and Kyle Quantrill is going in the 116 range. 
Um, and I have Quantrill ahead of Jordan Montgomery. So I don't know. I, I think that Cal Quantrill is a, is a, is a very interesting lower ceiling, uh, because Brubaker has that standout command, right? And if he just makes it, if he puts it all together, then that's, uh, that's, that there's nothing standout about Quantrill, um, except for his, uh, situation. In fact, actually, Plesak, uh, not Plesak, um, Savali, I think is a good, uh, is a good comp. And probably an even better sort of eat this, not that, because Musgrove maybe has one extra level above those two guys or a half level above those guys. There is a reasonable price gap, though, between Savali and Quantrill. And I think the thing with, with Quantrill that might sneak past some people is that velo that you mentioned. And even as a starter with the Padres in 2019, averaged 94.5 on the fastball. So I I think he can hold that little extra tick that we saw last year. At least it's not impossible uh, as far as the secondaries go, I mean, it's fastball, slider, occasional changeup. We saw more changeups from Quantrill during his time in San Diego than we did in 2020. Do you trust the third pitch enough to say that he's got three he can lean on, or are you a little worried that he's more of a two-pitch guy? No, I actually trust it. And one of the things that's interesting about his development is that the changeup came first, you know? Um, and for his career, the changeup has average whiffs, and uh is has done well and um the slider came second and he always thought it didn't have great shape he doesn't love the shape he's talked to me about it in in great detail but as he's thrown it more he's gotten better command and that one of the things that we found when we did command versus stuff was that um that command was more important than stuff on sliders so as i see it he's got two strike throwing pitches in the four seam and the slider, and he's got one action pitch in the change. Um, well, I guess the sinker, he's, he's gone to the sinker more. But in any case, the fastball and the uh, the fastball and the slider are strikes uh, more often, and the changeup is an action pitch, a whiff pitch. So, uh, you know, that's a little bit borderline still. <laughs> you kind of want to have two action pitches, you know? Um, but just by command alone, he's gotten a 16% whiff rate on the slider of his career, and that's above average. So uh, I, 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 you know, I don't know that the um, Indians have gotten their full, you know, kind of hands into him. Um, and uh, they are famously uh, really great at uh, game day preparation. So can they coax the most out of this three, the three, four pitch mix? Um, I would say. I give the every Indian a slight boost up because of what they've done in the past. Yeah, and again, we're talking about this range where you can afford to miss, you can afford to be wrong, and if you get lucky or if you find someone that ends up sticking on your roster all year, you're getting a difference maker at a, a buck or two in an auction or one of your very last picks in a mixed league. Let me give a late, a late game, late sort of really deep league uh, guys like a three pack here, um, that of guys that I find interesting that I didn't even rank uh, in the top 130. Um, and I just want to point out that Thomas Hatch, uh, you know, he has a great stuff number 118 stuff that part of that was achieved as a, as a reliever. And so we're going to have to see, uh, where Hatch sits. Uh, they're going to keep him stretched out. They're going to keep him and Julian Merriweather stretched out in Toronto. Um, I think in, internally, I get the sense that uh, you know Merriweather is slightly ahead, um, but uh, Hatch has the benefit of having a, a full arsenal 
at least four pitches and um you know this great stuff number that 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 goes along with it um i think that uh, i have hatch ahead of merriweather um and that's meaningful because i'm pretty sure that the blue jays will need at least one of those guys for a significant amount of starts i mean we're talking about ryu ray Rourke, pearson who has had injury concerns and maybe not established himself 100% as a major league starter. Steven Matz, who may not be any good and is also hurt all the time. Uh, and then Ross Stripling, who needs to kind of figure some stuff out with the slider and get get something back to get back in. Uh, Trent Thornton. So it's a little bit of a grab bag there uh, where I think Merriweather and Hatch could slide in there. Um, and uh, at the very least... Uh, if Hatch, if either of them ends up in the bullpen, uh, if Yates is is hurt at all, um, or just takes a step back because of the surgery, they could be closers. I mean, I think Hatch and Merriweather are my favorite non-Romano Yates characters. So if you're talking about a deep league where you got you want to have an extra arm around that could end up closing, could end up starting, Hatch is is my guy for you. Um, and the other two guys I know a little bit less about, or actually I know a lot about Logan Webb. Um, his stuff number is only slightly above average, command number is slightly below average, but there's something there in this ever-evolving ability to use uh, his four pitches better. He's came in as a sinker change guy, and he's trying to kind of add the four seam and breaking balls in a way where he'll, you know, and there's that kind of has four pitches, has decent command, could tweak something and pop. He's a seam-shifted waker and a, a, a spin-mirror guy. So I, I think there's something there for Logan Webb, and um, I think that Park will pay a little, play a little bit more pitch-friendly this year because I think they're going to take the tarps out uh, from, the, uh, from the alleyways. And then the last one um, is Kyle Cody. And uh, here's a guy I don't know much about. I just like his stuff number. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> uh, he just, uh, I think that any Texas Rangers starter has a chance. He was sitting 95 uh, with good ride uh, and two good secondaries in the changeup and slider. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the opportunity is there for him in Texas. I think uh, the Rangers are going to kind of sift through. Uh, players and kind of see who's going to stick around for the future. Uh, Cody is listed on Fangraphs as the seventh pitcher, but he's behind guys like Allard, uh, Fulte Navitz, uh, Arihara. Those all three of those guys uh, could go in either direction fairly quickly. Yeah, and there was a question. This will be the first of the questions we take. Actually, Kyle Cody came up twice. And the question came from Taylor. Am I crazy for thinking the Rangers have an interesting rotation also related? What do you think of Kyle Cody, Mike Fultonevich, and Kohei Arihara? So we've basically answered Taylor's question on Kyle Cody. I think he fits as a really deep, like a draft and hold or AL only end game slash reserve pick. Fulty, if he's got the velo back, I, I mean, I think yeah. he's flawed even with the velo, but definitely good enough to be back on the mixed league radar if, if everything looks good from that perspective this spring. Yeah, one year, two million dollar contract. Uh, you know what he didn't get was uh, a deal on the level of, um, you know, Paxton or or any of the other guys that we need to see something from. You know what I mean, health wise. Um, and I also just think that his upside, uh, if he's all healthy again, is probably in the fours ERA wise again because we only have that really that one season where it all came together for Fulty. 
Um, so to me, when I look at that, uh, that Rangers staff, <laughs> he's the soft spot for me, I think. Uh, that's the, that's the easy way in for Cody. And then Cody just, it looks like he, uh, missed 2019 to injury. I think there's a little bit of just, uh, the unfortunate shape of a career with respect to COVID. Um, imagine you miss all of 2019 for injury, you come back and then you don't even have the minor leagues again. Uh, I think that the projection systems are therefore putting too much weight on the 22 innings uh, that he's done in the major leagues because his strikeout rates and whiff rates uh, before uh, 2019 were all really good. So, um, you know, pair that with his good stuff number and you have uh, some reason for optimism. Yeah, I would put Cody, I put Kyle Cody in the Thomas Hatch bin for sure, though, in terms of the types of leagues where I'm thinking about those guys. Maybe closer to to getting in, though, right? Yeah, I would say fewer. Yeah, fewer options to take a spot in that rotation. Uh, I think the difference for me, you mentioned Hatch, maybe ending up in the pen if you know if Yates isn't healthy. Saves are a possibility won't. there. Cody won't Cody have won't. that, and nah, I, I do like the idea the minors or something. Like the idea of being able to back into some saves with a guy that doesn't work out as a starter. There's going to be a few of those that we get to uh, over the course of this episode. But I mean, I think for the sake of Taylor's first question, no, you're not crazy if you think the Rangers have an interesting rotation. For the limited resources they've spent to build their starting rotation, they at least have some interesting names in there with some pretty interesting skills. And the park playing very pitcher friendly in the early days of its existence Plus also the makes that more interesting. Yeah. yeah, could be a yeah. really tough place to score runs, which is, is great for the entire staff. Uh, thanks a lot for the question, Taylor. Let's get to this question from Steve G. There's two Steve G's that weigh in uh, on a lot of our, our shows. Uh, we appreciate both of them. Hey, I've, Steve I've, G's. Steve G 2.0, uh, Steve Gizul. <laughs> uh, who is the best late-round sleeper starting pitcher, and why is it TJ Antone? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, did, I, I tried not to. Uh, I saw that on the rundown. I tried not to step on myself by uh, mentioning him too early. I, I absolutely like him. Um, he's one of the uh, three people in the minor leagues that added the most spin year over year. That's something I got from a, of a source. Um, so uh, his stuff took a leap forward, and I think that uh, will probably mean some sort of disconnect uh, between his minor league stats and what could be his upside going forward. So uh, you see that much better whiff rate and strikeout rate than he ever had in the minors last year. And you could say it's just fluke, but you could also understand that uh, he went from starting games to relieving. And then he also had this massive spin rate increase. So um, I like him. I think that he belongs uh, a little bit more in the kind of hatch conversation because I also like Michael Lorenzen, and I think Michael Lorenzen is in the rotation. So basically what you're rooting for is either injury or uh, Wade Miley to not get it back together again. I guess that's uh, doable. <laughs> that's possible. I, I think with, with TJ Antone, he's probably not a mixed league dart for me until later in draft season. I mean, again, draft and hold its own things. It's 50 rounds. But if he has a good spring he could absolutely be a guy that's in that ADP 400 range. And I think the changes to his stuff are kind of breaking the previous scouting reports. He's definitely more of a, a pop-up sort of guy. So on the watch list for sure, and, and definitely kind of qualifies as a sleeper in the truer sense. 
Yeah, I have him with some interesting kind of six starter uh, sleeper types. Uh, Corbin Martin uh, coming off injury. He'll be probably fifth or sixth in the Arizona rotation. Um, and I always liked his stuff. Um, uh, Luis Patino uh, is right there where we don't just don't know his role and how many innings he'll get uh, this year. Um, you know, uh, like I guess a, a Kyle Wright he's close to. I would have him above all those. I do have him above all those. Uh, but it is uh, in that sort of 115 to 120 range where we don't know that he has a role yet. And that's that's going to be important because you're going to be chasing innings all year. And so role does matter. There's going to be a significant amount of movement in these rankings when we start understanding who's in the rotation and who's not. Yeah, the difference between pitchers in the 75 to 90 range versus mm-hmm. the 100 to 120 range oftentimes is just role and yeah, when 100%. that opportunity is going to be there. Uh, Brandon Champion wants to know, anything there with Justice Sheffield? I remember watching Sheffield in the Fall League a few years ago. It was when he was still a Yankees prospect. Had three pitches at the time. Not like oversized or anything like that where you looked at him and said, definitely going to be a great long-term starter. But I thought he looked good when I saw him back in the Fall League. That's always sort of stuck with me. I think that was the first year they were messing with the pitch clock. He had a couple of times where the pitch clock ran out. Didn't seem to get rattled or anything like that, right? So just see like a guy that was in control out there with three pitches. And it hasn't clicked for him yet at the big league level. You look at the scouting grades, a couple of, of above average pitchers, pitches with the fastball and the slider, a decent changeup. Command was always the question. A 358 ERA last year and a 130 whip in the shortened season definitely looks pretty good on the surface. Underlying numbers, we see improvements with the walk rate, a slight dip in Ks, and a really nice home run rate. Whether or not he's going to be you know, above average at controlling homers, I think is a pretty big question to answer as we try and figure out what his future looks like. One thing that's interesting about him um, is that he's a pitch mix change guy. Uh, and those always um, are interesting to me uh, when they kind of go hand in glove with a, a change in performance. So he gave up on the four seam that he'd been trying to throw and went uh, completely to the sinker in 2020. And, you know, you, there's reasons why um, in this league you want people to throw the four seam. Um, I wonder if, you know, the, the big thing for him is unlocking a, a few more Ks while retaining the ability to suppress homers. I mean, if he can get that to an eight and a half, uh, you know, you know, strikeouts per nine kind of situation and also keep the home run rate under one, then he's going to blow by all his projections and be kind of a low fours guy um, and be very useful in most leagues. So um, Sheffield for me is uh, the the added upside is what if he brings the four seam back and not as a foundational sort of strike pitch, but as an action pitch. What if he brings the four seam back as a more occasional high in the zone for whiffs kind of pitch that's the last kind of uh piece of upside i think that he has left so if he clicks i think my prediction is that's why if not i think you've got sort of a mid fours guy who will hopefully not give up as many homers may give up a few more hits um have a kind of not exciting whip um but be an al only uh useful in al only for sure I added it all up together, and he still made my top 80. So um, I, I, I'm fairly into him. 
I think I might have dinged him a little bit because of the six-man rotation and how that's going to oh, impact yeah. his workload. Uh, I had him in the 110 to 120 range, kind of like Jose Quintana at this point. But I think the difference is with Sheffield, there could be an up arrow. There could be improvement. With Quintana, it's more just holding on and, and trying to give you quality outings and just maintain low to mid fours ERAs. Sheffield, I think, could get you into the high threes over a full season with kind of a a league average sort of whip. I mean, in the zone, he's going to get hit a lot, but he does get a lot of ground balls. And I, I guess I'm more optimistic, not, not expecting the home run rate we saw in the shortened season, but I'm a little more optimistic than I'm with most pitchers that he's going to be okay at suppressing home runs. And that helps to offset the limited case that I'm expecting from Justice Sheffield. So fine as a late flyer, but I don't think he has a crazy high ceiling. I think he's just a, a really nice mid-rotation starter if it all comes together. John Hagelin wants to know, can Anthony Descafani pull a Kevin Gossman in San Francisco? I definitely got dinged up by Descafani a few times in NL labor. Uh, in that league, of course, guys are locked into your active lineup unless they go on the IL or get sent down or you cut them. Chase Anderson. Yeah, see, there's, there's, there's <laughs> one in each league all the time, right? Everybody's got somebody. I mean, the park, as you've mentioned before, it wasn't as pitcher-friendly as it had been in the past. It's still pitcher-friendly. It's still a good place to be. It's still a place where you're going to err on the side of starting someone who's decent at home. Does Anthony Descavani in San Francisco get you a little bit excited? Because, I mean, Cincinnati's a place where home run rates get blown up, and San Francisco's one of those places where they get suppressed pretty good. So that alone, I think, could swing the ratios a bit. Shades of Ivan Nova to Pittsburgh. <laughs> no, that's a good way to get me off the scent. <laughs> well, I mean, it did work for a couple of years, right? Um, one thing that is a little bit different, different for Gossman is that Gossman was seeing a bit of a uh, velocity renaissance uh, before uh, he got to... <laughs> nice. Uh, Nicely done. <laughs> before he got to San Francisco, I don't really see that in Discofani's profile. Um, although he was still throwing 95, so that's good. One thing I will point out is at choice underscore fielder had uh, you know, a list of pitchers that would see the most benefit from the dead and ball, and Discofani was number one. Mm. Um, so that's just the dead and ball. So if you take the dead and ball and add the park to it, maybe we're looking at 1.1 homers per nine. The last time he gave up 1.1 homers per nine, he had a 3.2 ADRA for the Reds. So maybe... You know, um, who are the other uh, reclamation projects that, you know, the Giants are doing this now? Yeah, they got a couple. I mean, Aaron Sanchez just landed there. Anthony oh, yeah. Gialdi wanted to know for super, super late. I mean, I I would say Aaron Sanchez kind of has some of the same appeal uh, of a lot of the guys we've talked about, kind of similar to TJ Anton, where depending on how he looks this spring, he goes from draft and hold flyer in the last 10 rounds to someone I would think about at the very end of like a 15-team mixed league because Aaron Sanchez, the problem's never been stuff. And we saw the curveball usage change when he got traded to Houston, got hurt really soon after that happened. Kind of a guy we've forgotten about a little bit in some ways. I mean, if the velo is there this spring, I'm excited. I was always excited about Aaron Sanchez getting an opportunity outside of the AL East. Now he gets one possibly in San Francisco. Yeah, and apparently he already hit uh, 80 uh, 98. That's nuts. The workout that got but him signed. The other appeal here too 
if for some reason it doesn't work for him as a starter, that is one of the most wide-open closer situations possible. And I think we've seen San Francisco with Farhan Zaidi take a starter and say, all right, it's it's not working as a starter anymore. Let's go to the late innings. And I could see him being you know, a right-handed sort of Pomeranz where he comes in and he is just electric working in short relief, closing out games. And if you want to say, oh, he hit 98, I don't care. That's just one number. Dude has not hit 98 in a major league game uh, since 2017. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think that Aaron Sanchez is a little bit like that Thomas Hatch situation, but um, you can't use that expression anymore on steroids, right? <laughs> no, no, not a good expression. It's a, a retail version of that, right? I don't know. Um, it's, a, it's a little bit more exciting version of the Hatch situation where, yeah, I think he could end up being useful in one or two, one of two different ways. Um, and if he's, you know, 2017 is a long time ago in 2016, he actually had, you know, stats you won on your team. Um, so I, you know, I, I'm cautiously optimistic about it. I'm, he wasn't in my rankings. I'm kind of trying to imagine where I'd put him now. I had Discafani at, uh, one, one twenty eight. I think I'd put him Sanchez above. Um, I think I'd put him into maybe Lindblom territory in the 110s, uh, maybe below that, maybe in the Tijay Antone, uh, Domingo Herman, kind of 118, 119 situation. I think he makes the top uh, 130 at least, uh, is my initial reaction to that signing. Um, and that that having that number, that, that one piece of information, um, makes me a little bit more excited than with Discafani, where I think that it might be interesting to hear, um, you know, pitching coach speak in the in the spring. I'd love to hear uh, someone give an interview. You know, Andrew Bagley gives an interview with with Discafani about how he's going to get it all back, and I'd love to kind of try to read between the lines about like what pitch he's going to turf and what pitch he's going to add and that sort of deal. Um, but, uh, you know, like Cueto, I'll, I'll have uh, above Discafani, but just because I think he's steady, Eddie, boring, uh, useful, half the time kind of deal. Uh, Gossman way ahead. Uh, Discafani, Wood, Wood and Webb. Um, you know, what did I have? Webb. I have Webb 137, and I have Wood 141. Um, they're all kind of interesting with the park, but uh, I wouldn't push Discafani to Gossman territories. Not not present Gossman, but like even how excited I was. That's a little bit more like Sanchez. I'm a little bit more Sanchez excited like I was when I heard that Gossman was going to San Francisco. Yeah, it's just like the style of the the Giants front office in terms of the types of players they go after. I think they they're taking shots in the right places on the right types of profiles, and if they they hit. It's going to help them via trade, or it's at least going to get them through the season and, and kind of, I don't know, like make them at least fun to watch. That's that's kind of nice to have have that option. And also, I think like the, I think they're using a strategy that works for their park, right? Instead of lamenting, you know, I think the last regime did a little bit near the end of their uh, tenure, did a little bit of lamenting, like, oh, we can't we can't land the big hitters anymore. We can't land the big fish because a the tax system definitely heard uh, a fair amount of whining about that. But with deferments and with 
you know, creative options and different uh, situations, you can give a person a bonus when they're not playing, right? Part of why Bauer got such a huge bonus on his contract, a $10 million bonus, is that he can, I think, get the bonus when he's living somewhere else. Um, and then move to LA to play and get a, a lower base salary. So there's ways to to kind of structure deals uh, to to help people get around taxes. So I, I don't think that's it. I think they were changing the park a little bit to make it more attractive to the next Giancarlo Stanton, who famously um, refused to go there. Uh, Bryce Harper, they were close on, um, but instead of sort of crying about it they've sort of they try to make it a little bit more play a little bit more fair and then also take advantage of it where do you want to sign if you're drew smiley where do you want to sign if you're kevin gossett where do you want to sign if you're aaron sanchez where do you want to sign if you're uh alex wood you know what i mean you want to sign in san francisco as a pitcher uh on that bounce back situation and so they just uh, they look for uh velo i think a lot of times i've heard farhan say before that like once you see a certain velo from somebody you can th- that's in there you, you you can that sort of describes their max velo describes uh what they can do uh later and so you know as soon as they saw him hit 98 i'm sure they they had a contract ready for him yeah some nice flyers there for all of those reasons in the back of that san francisco rotation we talked a lot about the marlins top three starters, I believe it was, back on part one of our starting pitcher preview. Had a question from Michael Waterloo. It wasn't even a question. It was Eliezer. It was just that. That was the whole tweet. <laughs> Exclamation. <laughs> Six starts from him last year. Good K rate. Great walk rate. I mean, everything on paper looked really good. Problem, of course, it was only 25 and two-thirds innings, but we saw it in 2019 for some stretches. A 124 whip against the 503 ERA. If you were a believer, you were talking yourself into maybe a low fours ERA. I think it's possible. I just I I look at Eliezer Hernandez and the swinging strike rate in each of the last two seasons backs up the K's. The stuff is different, to put it mildly. It's not premium velocity, right? It's the the very funky slider that I think gets a lot of of the whiffs that he gets. So. Is this real? Is this sustainable? And is this a skill set that we should trust? Because he's going a little earlier than a lot of the guys we're talking about. Eliezer Hernandez kind of goes in that that pick 250 range. So clustered up there with James Paxton, who I end up with all the time, and Ryan Yarbrough and Brady Singer. Uh, a spot where it's sort of choose your own adventure at that point in terms of what you're really looking for as you round out your staff. Yeah, I just I have a worry that he is more Yusmero Petit um, than uh, a, a really great starter. Part of why I say that is that uh, that pitch is so weird. It's um, uh, it's got curveball movement. Uh, it's got curveball velocity and cutter movement. I've never seen a pitch like that. I have a, a feeling that it's uh, surprising and at first very hard to time, and then gets easier to time once you see it more. And Part of my evidence for that is, well, very few people have seen him more than 10 times. Um, In his career, only three, six, nine, ten batters have seen him, have had 10 plate appearances against him or more. And they're almost all Braves. And of the guys that have seen him that many times, um, only Trey Turner, Ozzie Albies, and Ender Enciarte have an OPS under... 900 against him so 10 guys and if you want to count ozuna who has nine plate appearances you've got 11 guys uh with that would basically average somewhere around a 1000 ops 
Um, and then when you start looking at guys who've seen him uh, one, two, three, four, five times, uh, the numbers look a little better. Um, and so I think you know he's he's really hard to time up if you've never seen him before. And then he gets easier the more you see him. We just had a season where he just kept seeing the same teams over and over again. <laughs> Um, and now we're going to have a full season in front of us. I mean, it's a long-winded way of saying it, I don't believe. I. It, it's such a weird pitch that I just, I think it's a trick pitch. Uh, there's kind of, I don't, but I don't believe in him. It's fun, but I think the really high home run rate is deserved when you're talking about the velocity and just the overall mix that he's dealing with, so... It's going to make the ratios very volatile. I mean, especially that ERA. The bat's got him at pretty much a two pitch pitcher, right? And what if you throw like a really slow cutter at a, le- at a lefty? Like, what's going to happen there? Maybe eventually you give up a lot of homers. Yeah, I think he's a little expensive for what he is. If he were going in the four hundreds, he'd be draftable maybe as a streamer for deeper mixed leagues. But in the two fifty range, I'm just out. I'm glad people like him. I've got him in a keeper league, so maybe I can oh. deal him away. In a, like a real life sense, um, I I love it. Like I love watching him pitch and just being like, "What?" <laughs> like you have to, you have to. If you haven't ever seen it, you have to go see it. Like watch his breaking ball. It's very strange looking. It, it's like very noticeable to the eye. You're like, that is super slow, and it didn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> and yet it works. I love it. <laughs> yeah. But how long will it work? Yeah, that's where the concerns come in for me. Thanks a lot for the uh, the prompt, we'll call it. It wasn't really a question, but thanks for the prompt, Michael. <laughs> Got a strategy question here from Richard Sands. Group think and conventional wisdom is to go heavy on starting pitching early in drafts, pocket aces, or leave the first three rounds with two starters. How do you guys like this strategy? Have you had any drafts yet where you did or do did not do this? I think we talked about it briefly on a recent episode. You, I believe, are more on the side of making a point to get a couple of starters early. Is it two in the first three rounds? Or is it more like two in the first four, two in the first five? I think there's a, a variance there. Like two in the first five seems pretty normal. Whereas two in the first three is more aggressive. And as Richard alludes to, it is becoming a bit more popular. Yeah, I can't do it, man. I can't do it. Like I said, I exclaimed an utterance of despair four pitchers into my rankings this year. <laughs> Um, and so, uh, I just, I, you know, you're going to get, you want me to like use two of my first four picks to make sure I get you Darvish, um, as my second pitcher when, uh, you know, I feel like I could, uh, get Jack Flaherty in the next round or Zach Gallen in the next round. Um, I, I saw a drawing from Chris Towers that I, I agreed with. It was a drawing where he had the top three or four as a tier and then the next sort of 15 as a tier. I don't think there are pocket aces is my point. I don't think there are enough aces for people to have pocket aces. Hmm. Um, I, I just, there's so many question marks uh, that just start popping up. If it's, you know, Bauer and G Lito's command plus, if it's Darvish's injury uh, percentile, um, if it's Jack Flaherty's and Aaron Nola's up and down seasons in the past couple of seasons, uh, if it's Max Scherzer's back, Clayton Kershaw's back. <laughs> I like the pause there. I get all of it. <laughs> uh, but, um, 
you know, I, I, I don't see, I don't see the opportunity there for pocket aces. I want to, I want to have three bats and an arm in my first four rounds. Yeah. I'm looking at the labor mixed draft grid that went down on Tuesday night. And it looks like two teams did go pocket aces. Uh, Jeff Erickson from Rotowire had the eighth overall pick. He went Cole. DeGrom went seventh to Joe Pia, just for reference. So Cole was the second pitcher off the board. He got Lucas Giolito coming back through in the middle of round two. That's two of the top five on some boards. So that that sort of scratches the itch. Shane Bieber and Walker Bueller to Dr. Roto. He was drafted out of the 10 spot. He was the other manager who did that. Th- that actually would be pocket aces for me. I have I don't have Giolito in the top five, but I have Bieber and Bueller in the top five. So uh, that's pretty pretty legendary, I guess. Um, what is whatever is whatever his best three bats? So he went five straight hitters after going Bieber Bueller. He went Whit Merrifield in the third, Luis oh. Robert in the fourth, Keston Hira oh. in the fifth, Austin Meadows I... in the sixth, and Matt Olson oh. in the seventh. Ah, dude, he could come out of that with like a two thirty batting average. Yeah, that's definitely possible. I mean, Olsen for sure is going to be lower end of the scale for average. Robert's got a lot of risk. Merrifield's a high-volume, good-average guy, so there's a little bit of a foundation there. Man, Keston Hira, I want him to be great, but he's he's priced down for a reason. I think in the sixth round, fifth, sixth round, I think that's totally fine. It's the, I mean, I'm looking at the picks that went just before those turns. Like Starling Marte went one pick before Doc took Merrifield. If Marte were still there, I would have taken Marte over Merrifield. I just think Starling Marte is a slightly better player. If you if you don't worry as much about steals, you wouldn't have the you wouldn't have the same batting average risk. Yeah, right. If you if you flip Merrifield for Springer and you take man, you could do you could win a Rosarino over Luis Robert. I don't know about that. That's a tough call to make too. I think I, I think because of the batting average risk, a Rosa Reina over Robert is something I would increasingly consider if I'm taking one of those guys in that fourth round range. I, I guess the way it came together doesn't make me all that excited about it, but every draft is going to be different. And then auctions, of course, are a totally different animal too. Yeah, I think I, oh yeah, I would like to make the caveat that in an auction, I could see, especially in the NL, I think, I could see going for pocket aces where you basically build a rotation that's two, uh, two $35 pitchers, and then you take a real long break on pitching and you buy a bunch of $5 pitchers. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you have for, uh, uh, what do you have for a pitching auction usually for your, for your, for, uh, your budget? You usually have like $85. Is that what I'm thinking, right? I, I go a little, yeah. Like, I think I go a little higher than most on my pitching budget. I think I go 85, 90, even sometimes close to 100. It depends on and what I'm going to do with some of my bottom hitter spots. So, like in labor, where I feel like I can often get a couple of prospects for three bucks or less on the hitting side, that mm-hmm. opens up a little extra cash for me to spend more, either to get a second ace or to go a little heavier with what I'm spending on my second, third, and fourth pitcher, or to spend up for two closers instead of one probably not spending up for two closers this year. I said that last year and did it anyway. Uh, but this year, especially it's, it's such a nightmare. You'll have to go to 90 probably if you want to do the pocket aces, cause you're going to go 35, 35 on uh, if you like, it's usually around 35, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's usually an ace. So even if you go sort of 30, 35, now you got $65 on your top two pitchers. You kind of want to have at least one good closer. So 65 plus 15. Now you're already at 80. Uh, and you have six more pitchers to buy, so I mean you're gonna be you're gonna be sacrificing something. 
I'm comfortable with pocket aces in certain situations. I think auctions, I'm more comfortable than doing that if I'm on one of the ends of a draft this year. I think where Jeff and Doc were positioned at 8th and 10th, if you're in the middle third of like a 15-team draft, that's a spot where I'm a little more comfortable going that route. I just... I'm not in love with the way Doc's team came together. It's not a shot at him. We just like different players. And, and mm-hmm. again, you're left with choices that you're left with because of what people around you do. I, I wonder how he feels about that team. Right. It's just I, I, my reaction was not so much that I hate the team or hate the strategy. It's just that you 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 make sacrifices. Right? You're making right. a sacrifice. If you took uh, even one hitter in the top two rounds, you would have had a higher batting average on that hitter. You would have had more of a five. You might have gotten a five category guy that gives you some steals so that you can take Springer over um, over Merrifield, that sort of deal. You know what I mean? Um, so, you know, there's always a give and take. Um, I, the way that I would see two auctions, uh, two, two aces in an auction that I would really like is the shallower leagues, 10 and 12 team leagues. Then I like it better because then the, the floor is higher. So your $1 pitchers, a lot of them might be fine. They might be interesting, yep. you know? And so you get those two aces, and then you say, I'm going to get a bunch of $1 and $2 guys later, and I, I like that. But if you're talking about AL only, a $1 pitcher in AL only is like a middle reliever who probably won't get saves and probably won't get wins. Yeah. I The, sh- the more shallow the league, the more aggressive I'd be spending up on those aces because, as you mentioned, you can turn those bottom roster spots. You can find plenty of pitching on the wire in a 10- or a 12-team mixed league. That yeah. becomes more difficult once you get to those deeper formats. Uh, Jim Liu had a question about quality of stuff versus command after the top 100. How do you think about pitchers who have plus quality of stuff with bad command plus and vice versa? A couple examples, Kyle Cody, who we talked about earlier versus Trevor Williams or LJ Newsom versus uh, Luis Garcia, the Astro. So, I mean, I think at that point, it's just sort of, uh, I, I know I'm getting a flawed pitcher. I, I'm not. I'm not necessarily worried about having too many guys that are stuff over command that late because the probability of those players sticking on my roster all season are really low in mixed leagues. So I guess I'd probably err a little more on quality of stuff over command because I feel like the command guys bring plenty of start-to-start risk anyway, even though their floors are relatively safer. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that uh, also what you're looking for in a starter when you're picking that low is the ceiling. And I think the quality of stuff better uh, describes ceiling and command better describes floor. And so if I'm picking low, um, do I really want to pick Austin Voth, who like has good command and maybe has a role, uh, but he's kind of shown us the stuff isn't there? Or do I rather have Luis Garcia, who maybe doesn't have the role, but if he does get the role, if he does have a good spring or if he does show some better command, uh, could really pop, you know? So I I think I'd rather, uh, you know, have the like Julian Merriweather, Luis Garcia, and have all these guys rank slightly ahead of all the guys with command. Um, I'd rather have, um, you know, the, the, who's another good example, even a Bryce Wilson, he has a good command number, uh, a good stuff number. Um, so that's, that's where my bias was, is, is on the, um, the stuff side, except for, uh, Ben Bramer, dude, I, I have to give him a shout out. Uh, he's, I put him at 197, uh, just because, uh, I don't even know if, what his role is. And also I was really surprised to see that he has a 118 stuff number because I think his fastball average is 87. 
But that's sort of like the Cubs stuff 89. we've been talking about, right? Like it's it's not all about the velo. Yeah, no, I mean it has very interesting. Like he has good ride. Uh, the changeup has good movement uh, and a, and a good velocity gap. And the curve looks like it's a, it's a quality curve. But uh, um, I don't know about a one eighteen stuff number. That just really surprised me. I didn't know if I quite believed it. Uh, so he snuck into my top two hundred when he otherwise wouldn't have made it anywhere close. I think. You know, the other way I would look at this, I think the plus quality of stuff guys late, they're not available in spades, whereas like command guys are pretty readily available. It's sort of like how every team has mashing non-positional corner infield guy, like a like a first base DH type that can hit but can't really play defense. Every team's got a guy or two guys like that in their system. I think every team's got someone who can come out and throw strikes if they need to just bring somebody up to chew up some mm. innings. And not every team has the plus quality of stuff guy that could become a number two starter if everything clicks. And I think it's just the scarcity of what you're looking at that leads me to throw those late darts on the stuff guys instead of the, the plus command guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, any interest in Matt Shoemaker, by the way? He ended up with the Twins after we recorded our last episode. I mean, his injury track record is brutal. When he's been out there the last four years, the ratio has been pretty good. And Minnesota is one of those teams that we do uh, tend to trust in terms of the pitching decisions they're making with the current regime. Is there anything more than a late flyer there, though? Um, yeah, I think that uh, he's a good deep league play. I think that uh, your DL situation matters a lot. Um, I think he's a, he's not so great a play in NFBC where you've got to uh, hold him on your on your roster, you got to have him, you got to have a space for him. Uh, but there's a, there are a lot of teams now, increasingly, I think, uh, that have unlimited DL. And uh, in that case, I kind of like him. It's kind of like the you know the major leagues have unlimited DL, and if you look at the Rays strategy, they obviously just got a lot of, a lot of people that'll either pitch well or be on the DL, and that allows them to have the ultimate roster flexibility that they're looking for. Uh, in the form of phantom DL stints and, oh, my hamstring is barking today. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So I I feel like Shoemaker is the same thing where uh, when he's healthy, yeah, I'm super interested in him. When he's not, it all depends on what your DL situation is like. So uh, maybe a DFS play, maybe um, AL only with uh, unlimited DL, um, Maybe a draft and hold, but even then, draft and hold, you kind of want innings. You know, you kind of want to be like, I think this guy's going to, you know, pitch 100 innings. I can't say that for Shoemaker, man. A little bit like Rich Hill. Yeah. Yeah. A bit, a bit like Rich Hill at this point, and maybe with a lower strikeout rate, too. So that really limits the appeal, but useful for deeper mixed leagues, anything beyond that. Uh, Question from Guillermo. Braylon Marquez, is he truly in the mix for a rotation spot? I mean, I think he was maybe until they added Jake Arrieta, and now it's more of a let's see what happens. The upper levels of the minor leagues make a lot of sense for him, mostly because he topped out at high A in 2019. So I think Marquez could move relatively quickly. They don't have a ton of high-ceiling young starters in the mix. If Adbert Elzele gets sent down, he's the first guy up if he doesn't win a spot of his own. But... Braylon Marquez, I think keeper leagues, dynasty leagues, and maybe one of your last reserve picks in an NL only league. Yeah, I, I just think, yeah, Alzale and and um, and Mills are going to fight it out for the fifth spot, and then you're you're waiting for, uh, I guess it 
fairly inevitable injury to Jake Arrieta um, and, and or Trevor Williams uh, to slide in there. I like how Fangraphs has Mills ahead of Arietta and Williams. Yes, I'm with you. They could go bulk <laughs> with someone like Trevor Williams if they felt like one of the young starters was ready. I, I don't think that would be oh, kind of out of the question. Shift them into like a, a three inning roll or something. Two or three inning roll. Yeah, just just say hey, yeah, we we got you there. We'll, we'll start using yeah, one of these Shelby young starters. Or, yeah, yeah, he's he's still let's remember some guys. There. Tyson Miller. I don't remember him. Um. Yeah, Braylon Marquez. Yeah, I think he'll pitch major league innings this year. If that's the question, I just I I, I can't predict uh, beyond that. The other question that Guillermo sent us, which I think is just a good broad question anyway. Best case scenario for Luis Severino's return this year. I think we could put Chris Sale and Noah Syndergaard in this conversation too. Your league has to have IL spots if you're going to draft them. I mean. Maybe yeah. in an AL only or NL only league, you could virtually stash those guys away. But in the NFBC format, just to yeah. nurse those guys for two months, it's just going to be awful. It just doesn't work. I've got them kind of buried in my rankings, even though I think they're all really good pitchers, and I hope they all make it back completely healthy. I, I just see 2022 being where the interest lies. So if you're not playing for this season in a keeper or dynasty league, and you can get them either cheaply in the auction or uh, via trade. I think yeah. that actually makes sense for pretty much that entire group. I've been I've been seeing that happen in my in my keeper leagues too. So um, that's definitely a strategy, uh, and it does speak also to a weak point of all rankings, which is that um, not only uh, will there be sort of an inherent bias in the ranker to the games that he plays, uh, but there will be a structural bias uh, based on. Um, you know what? How that in- ranking interacts with the, the the structure of your league. So what I'm saying is basically, I ranked those players as I saw in kind of NFBC kind of format. You know, uh, but in Yahoo, where you're more likely to have like five DL spots or three is at least the the um, the default. Uh, they become they would go up. They'd go up, and I don't really know how to reflect that other than to show you the injury percentile. And so therefore, if you are in a league with more DL spots, I would mentally move anybody with a red flag in the injury percentile up because they become a little bit more interesting to you because you can stash them when they're hurt. Yeah. I think the timetable for all those guys is sort of similar. We're looking at generally 14 or so months for most guys to get back from Tommy John. That probably means June is the best case scenario for Thor's like all three. trying to get out in front of it and and trying to push his team, but at the same time the, the team also signed a lot of depth pieces, right? They're, and traded for. So they'll say, hey, the, you know, if we want, we want you healthy and we'd rather have two more starts from Jordan Yamamoto, who's whatever, um, then uh, to to push you and, and have you have a setback. So I think in the end, um, the team will win out and he, he'll come back in May or June. May would be the earliest for me. Yeah, but just speaking candidly about how my own rankings are set up, I've got Sale, Severino, and Syndergaard in that order at 98, 99, and 100 because I'm thinking about leagues with no IL spots and they're almost undraftable in those formats, which... Maybe they should even be lower if they're truly undraftable. It's just it's hard to account for the differences in league structure with a set of rankings like that. 
Uh, Nick Sackett, really good NFBC player, chimes in. Bumgarner and Michaelis, please. And he includes a request for Brian Slack, who he teams up with in the NFBC, to earmuff it for the answer. So, uh, Brian, if you could earmuff it for the next uh, minute or two, we'll we'll get this answer out there for Nick. Bumgarner is one of those guys, you know, that I've given up on. But if innings <laughs> yeah. are important, he will get innings. Like that's pretty clear. Unless he breaks and goes on the IL, Madison Bumgarner will get innings. The home park is also um, playing with the humidor. Is playing much uh, friendlier. Yeah, they put that in a couple so. of years ago. That's been that's been one of those things that if you are stuck to five years ago home it, starts i guess yeah yeah exactly so that's one key i mean I, i've got him wow man the projection systems the bat just buried Bumgarner. a 533 <laughs> era and a 137 so whip sad. it's so sad i don't know i wanted, I wanted so to be good it really did k ray okay here's the thing though Here, here's the case for madison Bumgarner. combined 2019 and 2020 numbers madison Bumgarner has a 118 whip he probably should be in my top 100. He probably is more draftable than those broken aces that we just talked about. 249 in the third innings combined over the two seasons. 22.5% K rate passable. The whip's good because the walk rate's good. 5.4% walk rate during that span. A little bit of a home run issue. I don't think that's going to go away even with the humidor, even with that park. But we're talking about an innings eater that's more comparable probably to... <sighs> I would say I just moved him to Kikuchi? next to Kyle Gibson. Oh, you're uh, you're appeasing Justin Mason by bringing up Kyle Gibson <laughs> on this episode. Yeah. I would love to hear, uh, honestly, I would love to hear a velocity update uh, uh, in the spring from Bumgarner before I drafted him. You don't want to necessarily just bet against Madison Bumgarner, right? I mean, he's the kind of guy that could come mm-hmm. back stronger and throwing harder and and ready to go. So. Draftable in a 15-team mixed league, despite my very aggressively low rank, which was only further justified by the Bats' terrible projection for Bumgarner. Maybe there's still something left in that tank. Miles Michaelis. I I actually have him fairly high. I think I have him a couple spots ahead of consensus. The projection on Michaelis is good. Uh, Top 86th ranked projection by the Bat. The park is good. Uh, he's a bit more of a, a command uh, first guy, but uh, he, his command stuff numbers look uh, right like about the same as Luke Weaver's, which is where I have him. Um, just outside the top 100. Uh, the injury percentile number next to him, 38th percentile, does not reflect the reality of the situation, though. Uh, I think coming off of a strained forearm that basically cost him most of last season, I would mentally tick that up. Um, and that's part of why he didn't go any higher. I had initially buried Michaelis because he's coming off of a flexor tendon surgery they had last July. Oh, they even had the surgery, yeah. It wasn't even had the surgery, that. but he is full go to begin spring training. Those are the kinds of updates we're getting right now, and that does make a pretty big difference. I just wanted to know that he was even healthy enough to start pitching at the beginning of the season. Right. Now that we have that green light, I mean, I think he, he and Bumgarner do fit in the same conversation innings and I think I actually prefer Michaelis to Bumgarner based on what we know right now I think Michaelis very safely in that St. Louis rotation just as Bumgarner is safely in Arizona's rotation here's the fun fact on Michaelis career ERA in the big leagues 382 career whip 120 and I think he's still closer to 
that level than Bumgarner is to his previous greatness. That's fairly obvious, I think, at this point. So uh, hopefully uh, Brian's slack you time can see by just, just right. looking at yeah, <laughs> uh, and and uh, you can see it by the velocity numbers, right? He's closer to his his peak velocity than Bumgarner is. We uh, also made uh, Yancey Eaton happy with a little Kyle Gibson talk in passing. There, he's here for a Rick Porcello and <laughs> Kyle threw Gibson some, talk. Threw some threw some shade at Kyle Gibson, <laughs> just sort of hit and run. <laughs> yeah, well, if you know, if we talk to Justin at some point. He can hype up Kyle Gibson. I'm not going to do that. We, we talked about Rangers starters and, and didn't even really mention him earlier in the show. I, I do think that that, that group uh, speaks to what you were saying about sort of having strike throwers at the at, at your disposal, right? Um, uh, here's some guys that are ranked near him that are kind of command uh, first guys. Kyle Gibson, Martin Perez, John Lester, Jose Urania. Like, uh, these are Alex Wood, you know. Uh, these are eminently gettable guys uh in in the big leagues uh which means that they're not scarce at all in fantasy leagues skills went in the wrong direction sort of across the board in the shortened season but the frankenstein numbers are a little bit better if you're looking for a reason for some optimism on kyle gibson weird to me that rick porcello is not just in camp with somebody given the need for innings he's third in innings over the last five seasons that alone should garner a look from someone doesn't mean I want him on my fantasy team, but just kind of weird that no one so far, maybe he'll sign in the time after this podcast comes out. And the last question from this section comes from Delirious. Matt Moore, yes or no, is he worth the late gamble? I think we talked about him when he was coming back over from a season in Japan. I thought Matt Moore was pretty interesting last offseason. He had an injury short in 2019 with the Tigers, looked good in a couple of starts, uh, didn't allow a run in 10 innings, very small sample what kind of league would I draft him in? Draft and hold only and maybe NL only too. I mean, I don't like to land it in Philadelphia because it's not a home park where you want to use fringy starters. So that's a big part of what's working against Matt Moore, even though I think he's a pretty fun dart throw for the Phillies. Yeah, we. Uh, I snuck in a question into the Zoom about what he'd done to um, improve himself in Japan. And... Um, Got a big nothing burger of an answer, honestly. <laughs> I it was uh, I don't know if he you had to be prepared for that. Um, I don't know. He just said something about working together with his pitching coach. You know, I think that we had a more prepared story when Lindblom, Kelly, uh, when those guys came back. You know, and I don't know if it's if that's meaningful, but I think it probably is because uh, they had something they had to say that'd be like this is what's different about me now. Uh, with Matt Moore, it's just like, I'm a year older. <laughs> what did you do and, for the last and year? And the competition like, was easier over there. <laughs> yeah, it's not really exciting. Hey, I worked on spin efficiency. I added a yeah. pitch. I, I became more confident in my curveball. Make something that, up yeah, for Mikolas our sake. when he came back over. Nicholas <laughs> yeah. was like, you know, improve my command and improve my breaking ball. Yeah, that's uh, probably a no for me in most circumstances if he's worth the late gamble. But again, ultra deep leagues, stranger things Is have he happened. Even in the rotation? Not necessarily. I think he could end up being in the pen. Really, maybe they're playing. Maybe that they're playing him that way. Like you know, we, okay, Fangraphs has him in the rotation over Spencer Howard. I mean, 
that's a hard no. Howard's got it's got to be Moore versus Chase Anderson for the fifth starter spot with Nola Wheeler, Eflin, and Howard as the first four. And Velasquez right? out is what you're saying. Velasquez, I've been I've been trying to put Vince Velasquez in the bullpen permanently for about three years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I can see that, and it's not like last year really spoke that well for him in terms of starting. We have a, a really important decision to make. We're 84 minutes in on this pod. We haven't talked about pitching prospects yet. We haven't talked about Sparps yet. So we either extend part three into a part four, or we run through those sections now and have the longest pod we've ever had. No, no, no. We can't do that. We have to We have to pull it together. I, I would say that um, we should do like a strategy uh, fill-in-the-blank uh, pod where we can um, – talk about uh different strategies maybe different weird strategies different things punting you know stuff like that auction strategies we can throw in sprp because that's a uh, a strategy thing whereas you're trying to you're trying to fit either holds into your starting rotation or blah 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 so um yeah let's 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 put those guys off did we talk about all the news of the day let's see did we talk about all the news of the day what news was there let's see sean murphy had a collapsed lung he's expected yeah. to be back in spring training at some point before opening day so that's uh that's one did you, i think you give him a slight downgrade like a like a round or two a couple spots in your catcher rankings just because a delayed start you could open the year on the il like that's at least a possibility yeah, so they say he's fine though montas has COVID. how much do you you uh downloads downgrade somebody for that it, it really affected some people. Eduardo Rodriguez lost the whole year, but you know, some other people, it didn't, it didn't matter to so much. And then you have this like set against um, his season where he recovered the slider eventually and, you know, got uh, more drop on the slider and got more velocity on it and went from 8% whiffs, to like 20% whiffs over the course of the season. Uh, what if he takes a step back velocity wise because of uh, the COVID? I'm tempted to drop him a couple spots in the pitching rankings. I mean, it's just, it seems ugly and gross and dirty, and I hate having this conversation, but. I think of it this way it's just, it's lost time. If you miss time in spring training, I mean, again, anybody with that virus, we just hope they recover and come back and are, are healthy. But if you, you tear up a hamstring and you're out for a month in spring training, you get downgraded for that too. It's just an absence that impacts the start of your season. So it's the, the unfortunate part of ranking players in a pandemic, right? It's just part of how it works. So I would lower him a little bit just because of the possibility that he's not fully stretched out by the time the season starts. Uh, Garrett Crochet, a reliever, we expected that. So that's you know not big news. Nick Madrigal likely to be back in March. He had a shoulder surgery, I believe it was. Yeah, he's expected <laughs> to play in spring games in early March. So we'll see the, how that happens. I, there was like a little bit of a detail I thought was funny. Where uh, the last thing, the last step before he can play in games is he needs to do some controlled diving. <laughs> I don't know why I thought that was funny. It's just like can imagine it's like, like kind of a mattress and like. Or you can dive <laughs> into a pile dive. of snow. Yeah. Head first dive with a sled. Did that once Control, in college. Or is it like they put them on like a uh, like a hammock and they're just like pretend you're diving? <laughs> yeah, yeah, trampoline dives. Uh, but yeah, that was pretty much it for news. There was a trade early in the morning. Oh, there was actually one other news item that I just saw. Thank you to Rotowire for pulling all the news together because there's so much of it flying by on Twitter right now. It's very hard to track it. Denelson Lamette is on schedule with his throwing program. So, yeah. Some good news on Denelson Lebet when everybody keeps dropping him. How do you rank that against full go? 
from Miles Mikolas. Is that a full go? I don't think that's a full go. Not a full On go. On track with the throwing program is like, like everything's okay still, kind of. If you know, he were on it's track not like with no the other restrictions, pitchers. yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, the words chosen mean his something. His throwing program, not like everyone's, not like he's ready to make his first start. You know? <laughs> so. uh, there was a, a trade that broke really early Wednesday morning. How about this one? Well, there's two trades actually. Ronaldo Hernandez, the catching prospect for the Rays, ends up in Boston. So. Hyam Bloom going after a prospect in the Rays system. Jeffrey Springs and Chris Mazza go to Tampa Bay. I didn't see anything to get excited about with either of those guys. Did that trade do anything for you when you saw that this morning? I raised an eyebrow at the Chris Mazza situation. Um, he's like a sinker guy, and it's not like a turbo sinker. You're not talking about um, a Jose Alvarado replacement. Uh, it's a 92-mile-an-hour sinker. So, yeah. uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe this is just like a, an innings play, you know, because they, they are having, you know, like even with their whole like, let's go out and sign every broken uh, veteran that we can find strategy. Um, like if I was going to predict the league leaders, uh, the, the raised leaders in innings, I'd say Glasnow around 140, Yarborough around 125, maybe maybe flip those. Um and then I, I had uh, Fleming with like 80, uh, with maybe uh, maybe a little bit more, maybe 90, 100. And then the rest of those guys tied at 80. And they need to get to 750 innings from their starters somehow. And um, at some point, that even that bullpen, you need to have some guys who are going to throw 60 and just be able to throw 60. So maybe they just saw in Is Maza have options left? Yes, he probably does. I would guess that he does because, yeah, they moved uh, John Curtis away and they, they, the Rays are doing all sorts of little shuffling. He has one option roster. left. It's big and bold there at the top. So <laughs> they, they they brought him on just so they can up and down him. That's what that's that's what happened there. He's, he's on the taxi squad now. All right. Uh, Jordan Hicks, likely back as the full-time closer. In St. Louis, is according to Derek Gould of the St. Louis Post Dispatch, he of course was coming off Tommy John surgery and ended up opting out of 2020 for for health reasons. It's interesting. I've been going after Giovanni Gallegos mostly because I feel like even if Gallegos doesn't close, he's rosterable in some of the the deeper leagues out there as just a, a high leverage reliever with good ratios and a good strikeout rate. But some clarity on that St. Louis situation. Would be nice because if Jordan Hicks is really the guy, I think you can probably argue him up as high as probably a top 12 or top 15 closer to start the season. Yeah. Now do the Braves. <laughs> <laughs> or the Padres. Mark Melanson ended up there since we last spoke. Yeah. Like that's, that's getting worse by the day. I think it's Pomerantz uh, for me, but I, I don't think I can pick the, uh, the Braves closer right now. Mm, I still think it's Will Smith, but yeah. not a lot of confidence in that. Uh, Travis Shaw's back with the Brewers. I mean, they were silver medalists for Justin Turner, like we said the other day. So they bring back an old friend that had some success there a few years ago. Given the way things played out for Shaw at the end of his time in Milwaukee, and he wasn't he wasn't bad last year, but my expectations are minimal at this point. You know, if it works, it's a nice story. 
If it doesn't, it's not a big deal. Six homers in 50 games for the Jays last year, a 92 WRC+. This is a guy that was about 20% better than league average when he hit 30 home runs in back-to-back seasons in 17 and 18. So I, I kind of think, I think he's more of a part-time player at this point based on the contract they gave him and the flexibility they have with some other infielders on the depth chart now that they didn't have two years ago. Yeah, I think they're uh, they're there's a lot of things that are there's a lot of spots on that uh, team that are kind of up in the air. I would say that I count shortstop as one of them. So shortstop and third and first. Well, I guess just Hira. It's not really up in up into debate, is it? First is good now. First is covered with Hira. Yeah, it's Hira. So anyway, shortstop and third, and then I think they would actually benefit from having a DH. Because uh, I think Vogelbach is a major league bat, um, and they've got him cheap. So uh, Urias could end up playing short next to Shaw, or Arcia could end up playing short next to Urias. How Still do you, a lot of ways uh, it can play out. How do you peg that? I think I think Urias is eventually the shortstop. Oh, you do? I think he's eventually the shortstop. Okay. I don't know if he wins the job, but I I just I, I see Arcia finishing this year as the super utility guy where he can he's got a great arm, he's got enough range at short where he can play other positions. He doesn't hit a ton, but he's you know, we had the email about two weeks ago. He's getting better. If the bat steps back at all, I think he loses his job. I mean you have to there's a certain amount. I think that was what Zimmerman was saying, like a six fifty OPS. And if you look at what Arcia has done, he's hit six fifty twice in his career. So if he falls below 650 again, I think he could lose that job And uh, no matter how good his defense is. I'm with you. All right, I think that was all the news. We tried to get through as much of it as we could at the end of this episode. If you enjoy this show, we'd appreciate it. If you took a moment to leave us a nice rating and review, if you'd like to sign up for The Athletic, you can get a subscription at $3.99 a month to start at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels on Twitter. He's at Enoceris. I'm at Derek Van Riper. You can check out all of our rankings, get the draft kit rolling out next week or about one week away from the launch of our fantasy baseball draft kit. So we've got that to look forward to as well. Thanks for listening to Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Friday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.